Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast, an audio-guided walk featuring many of London's untold, unsolved and long-forgotten murders, all set within and beyond the West End. Today's episode is about Martha Browning, a young girl who murdered her elderly bedmate for that most common of reasons, money. And although her attempt to cover it up was bafflingly inept, her motive was one that no one could truly fathom. Murder Marley's research used authentic sources. It contains moments of satire, shock, and grisly details. And as a dramatization of the real events, it may also feature loud and realistic sounds. So that, no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 144, Martha Browning's Baffling Motive. Today, I'm standing in Brewer's Green, Westminster, SW1. Three roads south of Godratola Barani banging on the gates of Buckingham Palace. Four roads east of the scattered remains of Emily Bell Bigay. One hundred yards east of the assassination of Sir Michael Francis Dyer by Udem Singh. And we're very close to the mystery of Bob Gould, the man who was never there. Coming soon to Murder Mile. Brewer's Green is an odd place. As being perched at a Y-shaped junction, it consists of a large tree, an impossibly tiny school, and a fenced-off patch of grass. But surrounded by all sides by glass-fronted monstrosities, it looks like the last vestige of its past has been swamped by its present. Preserved for posterity, on the corner of Caxton Street sits the Blue Coat School, a 17th-century relic often called the Blue Boy. And yet everything else built prior to the 1900s has long since been demolished. 
flanked by embassies, law offices and equity firms, as well as salons, where a single trimmed follicle can cost a whole month's wage. Posh hotels, where even touching the minibar requires a second mortgage. Designer tailors, who intricately stitch pocket hankies. Which are not for blowing your bogies on. Thank you. And of course, there's a pret. The McDonald's, for every avocado-chomping, middle-class numpty. More than 170 years ago, Brewer's Green was unrecognisable being a rabbit's warren of dark alleys, dilapidated hovels and overcrowded lodging houses. Just off Caxton Street, at one Providence place, was a three-storey townhouse occupied by 32 lodgers. Paying by the week, and sometimes by the day, being too poor to rent or buy their own, many shared a room, and often a bed, with a stranger. Two such bedfellows were 61-year-old Elizabeth Mundell and 23-year-old Martha Browning. Like a surrogate mother and daughter, being snuggled up under a blanket was no great issue as it kept them both safe and warm. But when money got tight, their situation forced Martha to do the unthinkable. As it was here, on the 1st of December, 1845, that Martha murdered Elizabeth. And although she would almost disguise her ghastly crime, right from the start, her motive was cursed by a fatal mistake. Everybody likes a laugh and a joke, right? A bit of fun to alleviate the stresses and strains of daily life. Elizabeth Mundell was a jolly lady. And being a pink round ball of flesh, which heartily wobbled like a bowl of blancmange when she left, she was impossible not to love. But as a woman, for whom tragedy often beat her with a shitty stick, she made the best of a bad life. Elizabeth was 61 years old, a good age for a working-class woman in that era. Born on the 4th of February, 1785, her family were labourers and washerwomen, so her depressing little life story was already written before she had even breathed. Slogging out her guts seven days a week, 16 hours a day, to serve her ungrateful lord and master. Her meagre wage included no holidays, no sick pay, no benefits, no pension, and it was barely enough of a pittance to survive. But in her 20s, she met and married Thomas Mundell, later a soldier in the Queen's Guards, based out of Horse Guards Parade near the newly renovated Buckingham Palace. Married for close to 40 years, they battled through thick and thin. And although they tried for a child several times, with the mortality rate for babies being so high, only one was known to survive. But together, Thomas, Elizabeth 
and their daughter Anne would live a good life in Kennington, South London. As the matriarch, Elizabeth was strong. Although large, she was fit, healthy and agile on her feet, with part of her width being the muscles she had developed owing to the demanding nature of her work as a domestic, a wife and a mother. But by 1840, life rewarded her with cruelty. Unable to keep up with the younger servants, Elizabeth was let go. Being too old, Thomas was invalided out of the army. And with pensions being the preserve of the middle classes, they were forced to rely on their only child. In 1843, Thomas died, leaving Elizabeth as a penniless widow. To dull her depression, sometimes she drank, and around the same time, she sank a bottle of poison, although some said that this was a mistake. She had worked her whole life, but had nothing to show for it, except for a few odds and sods which fitted in a small wooden chest and some cheap knickknacks that she kept in a red cloth housewife. A small bag she stashed in a bathrobe pocket, full of needles, threads, buttons, and things which made her smile. Elizabeth loved to laugh and devoured anything which distracted her from her pain. She took pleasure in the simple things in life, like a cup of tea, a suet pudding, but most of all, she loved a good bargain. Keeping any leaflet or voucher which saved her money, and especially any harmless sales gimmick, like a fake check or a pretend pound note, which no one in their right mind would take seriously. In 1844, she moved into the first floor room of Mrs. Graham's lodging house at One Providence Place. And as much for company, warmth, and an income of 18 pence a week, she shared a bed with a lodger. In November 1845, a friend of her daughter and someone she had known for six months became her bedfellow. She paid on time, they got on well, and although being a larger lady, Elizabeth took up most of the mattress, it didn't prove a problem as her lodger was quiet, harmless, and petite. Her name was Martha Browning. Three weeks later, she would kill Elizabeth Mundell. And yet, no one foresaw this, as she didn't look like a murderer. Martha was 23, but looked barely 13. Being as tiny as a doll and as fresh-faced as a peach, she exuded innocence and was the kind of girl many wanted to protect. With a faint little voice and apple-blossom cheeks, although undeniably sweet, her pixieish proportions were partly down to malnutrition and plagued with illness, she walked with a slowness which mirrored her childlike mind. Little is known about her life, except she was born in Alton in Hampshire, 
her father was dead, and her two siblings lived and worked in London. Since the summer, Martha had worked as a lowly servant to Captain William Matthews and his wife Jane on Bedford Street in Covent Garden. But being too light for heavy work and too simple for complicated tasks, on the 18th of November, she was let go from her job. The few coins she had squirreled away were gone. The bitter winter was howling in, and living under the black shadow of a workhouse, which loomed behind her like a dirty cloud of doom. Unable to pay 18 pennies a week for a bit of a bed, soon her fate would include hunger, poverty, and homelessness. Thankfully, she had a very maternal bedfellow in Elizabeth. But being pushed to such extremes, even the meekest of creatures are likely to snap. Around that same time, inside Elizabeth's red cloth housewife, Martha spotted something she had never seen before and would probably never see again. Printed on paper, swirled with ornate italics, and emblazoned with what her semi-literate eyes read as Bank of England, she saw a five-pound note. It was tatty, it was old, and having kept it for so long, it had an odd smudge of dirt in the corner. For Elizabeth, she was not shy about showing it to others, as it made her smile. But for Martha, that note would pay her rent for the next two years. On the night of Sunday the 30th of November 1845, both women went to bed at around 10.30pm. According to Mary Cheshire, the lodger in the next room, Elizabeth was in good spirits. But about this, Martha would later disagree. She went off all well and sober. But about midnight, she was turning and restless. She didn't say what of, but earlier she had pains in her head. About four o'clock, she plunged like she was fitted. I asked her what was wrong. She said it was just a dream. I asked her should I get her anything. She said no. For the next three hours, they slept. But at 7am, Martha was awoken by Elizabeth's screaming face. Her eyes were wide and wild, her jowls undulating as she screamed, Murder! Murder! What are you doing to me? Maybe it was widow's grief, or bad food, or some kind of madness, as she was not herself. She threw her hands up to her face, screaming all hell and such. I got up, I washed her face with water, but it did no good. So I said to her, I'd go and fetch her daughter. Of course, that was Martha's version of events. But Mary Cheshire heard the screams. I heard Mrs. Mundell cry out. I went to the door and found it fastened on the inside. 
I hammered. Nobody answered. I rapped again, and the girl answered in a low tone of voice. Nothing's the matter. I heard nothing after that. No noises, nor calling out. Fifteen minutes later, having put on her bonnet and cloak, Martha unlocked the door. She was lying in the bed. Quite quiet she was. Elizabeth pleaded, don't go for Anne. But I had to. Before leaving, Martha knocked on Mary's door. She told her Elizabeth was sick, but now sleeping. She was going to fetch help, and asked Mary to check on her if she heard any noises. She heard nothing, so she never went in. And during the 15 minutes that Martha was away, no one else entered the room. Of course, there's a reason why Elizabeth was so silent. A few streets south, at 11 Rochester Street, Martha frantically banged as loud as her tiny fist could. As her little lungs breathlessly exclaimed, Your mother's ill. She fitted. Come quick. But by the time they had returned to the lodging house, Elizabeth was already dead. The scene was bizarre. It was only a small, simple room, but the bed was empty. Elizabeth was missing, and upon the indent where once she had slept, three heavy wooden chairs had now been stacked high. But why? Behind the door, Elizabeth lay. Dressed in a nightdress, she lay sprawled on her back, her limbs lying limply by her sides and her head hung back as the roundness of her belly arched high. With bloodshot eyes bulging from her pale livid skin, through her frothy gaping mouth, a fat purple tongue poked. Shocked by the sight, Martha fled screaming. For God's sake, send a man. A woman's hung herself. And so it seemed, as knotted around her neck, Embedded deep into her flesh was a length of cord. But if this was a suicide, it looked as if it had been cobbled together in a panicked state by a simple mind. Dr. John Atkinson arrived soon after, determining her flesh was swollen and livid, her eyes open, blood issued from her nose and ears with froth from her mouth consistent with hanging or strangulation. But aside from the fact that she had been of good spirits, several details didn't make sense. If she had hung herself, why had the three chairs remained upright? Why were the roof pegs unable to take the doctor's weight, let alone hers? If the rope had snapped, Why hadn't it frayed and left a tatty length of noose dangling? And why were there two ends of rope on either side of her neck? If instead she had strangled herself, how did she tie the knot without it loosening? How did she pull the rope from behind her own back? Why was the rope still taut 
as the second she lost consciousness, it would have untied. Given the depths of the marks in her neck, why were there no resulting rope burns on her palms or fingers? And how did she manage to climb onto the box after she was already dead? And if this was a murder, being strong, Elizabeth could have fended off any assailant, but only if she was awake. With the door locked from the inside, how did her killer get in? And most importantly of all, what had been stolen? As nothing appeared to have been touched, or so they thought. That night, at the Coach and Horses pub in Dean's Yard, an inquest was held into the death of Elizabeth Mundell. Witness statements were heard. Martha gave a statement. The jury saw the body in situ. But as was standard practice in a case so seemingly simple, Dr. Atkinson was not asked to give evidence. So based on her widow's grief, her poverty, and her prior history of suicide, the jury declared that Elizabeth Mundell had died by suicide owing to her state of insanity. Martha was not arrested. No police investigation was initiated. And with Dr. Atkinson unable to usurp the coroner's decision, the case was closed. Back at the lodging house, Elizabeth's body was laid out. So mourners could lay flowers and pay this lovely lady their last respects. But struggling to cover the funeral costs, there she would remain until the money could be found or her rent ran out. And unwilling to sleep in the same room and especially the same bed as a dead body, Anne let Martha, her mother's murderer, sleep in her home. But still, things didn't sit right for Elizabeth's family. Upon moving her body onto the bed, Edward, Anne's husband, had noticed that the mattress was wet, as was to be expected, as when a person is hung, their bladder often voids, expelling urine. Only with the top bone dry and the wetness underneath, someone had flipped the mattress over. At Anne's home, Martha was clearly nervous, as a second inquest was requested and looked likely to go ahead. And against what he was permitted to do, Dr. Atkinson had informed Anne and Edward that the inquest findings were wrong, that the death was not a suicide, and that Martha was most likely the killer. What they needed was undeniable proof. What they got was Martha Browning. Two days later, Anne and Edward, accompanied by Martha, headed to the lodging house to prepare the body for burial. Sadness hung in the air like the fetid stench of decomposition. Riddled with guilt, as the grieving daughter wept, 
Martha kissed the corpse's cheek and uttered, Do you think she's happy? And although an odd phrase to utter in such company, as she prayed, what she did next defied logic. With uncharacteristic generosity, to Edward, Martha declared, Most likely you are short on money. I will lend you a sovereign. A small fortune for many, but being the equivalent of four months' rent for an unemployed girl of just 23 years old. He thanked her, but his suspicions had been piqued. From her cloak pocket, she pulled a note. Printed on paper, swirled with ornate italics, and emblazoned with what her semi-literate eyes read as Bank of England, she held a five-pound note. It was tatty, it was old, and having been kept by its original owner for so long, it had an odd smudge of dirt in the corner, which Edward saw. I offered to change it for her, he said, but she insisted on doing it herself. Into the Blue Boy, a public house beside the small school on Brewer's Green, Martha entered, note in hand. But barely a minute later, she emerged with a look of dejection and even a little shock on her squished-up little face, stating, Oh, they've played a trick on me. I do not understand. They said they wouldn't change it. And they wouldn't, and for good reason. Grabbing her by the scruff of the neck, Anne and Edward forcibly marched the girl towards Scotland Yard. And being too tiny to break free, Martha could do nothing to escape their grip. In a hysterical panic, between fits of pleading and passing out, she made a full confession, declaring, What will my mother think of me? A murderer! To die on the gallows! Several times, she asked those around her to pray for her guilty soul. She admitted that this was her first and only robbery, and said, I cannot keep it any longer. I murdered the old woman and deprived your wife of her mother. The five-pound note was presented. Martha confessed. She was arrested at Gardner's Lane Police Station, and whilst ripping out fistfuls of her own hair, and repeatedly collapsing onto the floor like a dumped rag doll. She tearfully pleaded, I am an unfortunate creature. Do with me what you like. Headed up by Inspector Partridge, an investigation was conducted by the newly formed Metropolitan Police and several crucial pieces of evidence were found, which the initial inquest hadn't requested. Such as, two pawn tickets for a gown and a shawl once owned by Elizabeth, and most damning of all, in her own box, they found a length of cord identical to that which she had used to strangle her bedmate to death. Thanks to Dr. Atkinson's testimony, which he was finally permitted to give, 
A second inquest dismissed the case of suicide by insanity and found grounds to proceed with a charge of murder. Martha Browning was tried at the Old Bailey on the 17th of December 1845. The case was a media sensation, as no one could believe that this mere slip of a girl, with elfin-like limbs and apple-blossom cheeks, could be so callous. Especially as often she had to be carried into the dock by two policemen, and several times during the trial, it was stopped as she fainted. Her defence was simple. Elizabeth's death had no witnesses. No one had seen it, and no one had heard it. She had been unwell, as an inquest had proved, and all of the evidence was entirely circumstantial, so her guilt could never be proven without a shadow of a doubt. The jury agreed and asked for leniency, but the judges overruled them and she was sentenced to death. At five minutes to eight, on the morning of Monday the 5th of January 1846, Martha was led from her cell at Newgate Prison. In a barely audible whisper, she thanked the guards for their kindness and weeping like there was no tomorrow, which there wasn't, she was led outside to the hangman's gallows. As the first woman to be executed at Newgate for 14 years, a crowd of 30,000 spectators had assembled. Some sat eating picnics, some got drunk, many jeered and heckled, and so excitable were the crowds that when Martha appeared, a stampede crushed several, leaving a nine-year-old girl crippled for life. As the clock struck eight, having made her peace with God, Martha uttered her final words, May the Lord have mercy on my soul. With her thin limbs fastened and the noose tightly secured about her tiny neck, the trapdoors flung open and the little body of Martha Browning dropped. Only, she didn't die. As with William Calcraft being less of a skilled executioner and more of a grisly showman, through his bungling for the sake of entertainment, Martha endured a truly horrible death. As being so tiny and light, her body weight hadn't broken her neck in a single swift snap. Instead, she was yanked and dangled, and as her neck stretched, she was strangled over several long minutes. Ironically, her end mirrored Elizabeth Mundell's at her own hands. But with the crowds now baying for blood, Martha's life was ended by Calcraft's trademark finale, as the 15-stone man hung from her feet. In her prison cell, Martha had fully confessed to a priest. Her motive was simple. She was desperate 
and had been tempted by the £5 note. A sum of money which could, and did, change her life forever. But even though the murder was pre-planned, a small but vital detail had eluded Martha. To distract her from her pain, Elizabeth loved to laugh. She took pleasure in the simple things in life, like a cup of tea, a suet pudding. But most of all, she loved a bargain. Always looking to save a penny, she kept any leaflet or voucher, especially a harmless little gimmick, like a fake check or a pretend pound note. Printed on paper, swirled with ornate italics, and emblazoned with what her semi-literate eyes read as Bank of England. What Martha saw was a five-pound note. But what everyone else saw was a practical joke. You couldn't spend it, and it was worth nothing. It was just a simple little ploy to lure a customer in, and which no one in their right mind would ever take seriously, or would think was legal tender. But having missed the joke, Martha's motive was fatally flawed, as the note, once again, made Elizabeth smile. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. As always, an entirely optional bit of chit-chat, which includes some aimless thoughts, a few questions, and a lot of extra details about the case continues after the break. A big thank you to my new Patreon supporters, who are Hazel Cullen, Mark Gibson, and Simon Russell. I thank you all. May the King of Badenburg bestow upon you a lifetime supply of cakes, all served up by Reg Christie clutching a cup of tea. What a treat. Another treat, of course, of all the goodies you get via Patreon, such as badges, stickers, keyrings, photos, videos, plus episodes you won't get anywhere else. Ooh. And as always, a thank you to everyone who leaves lovely reviews of Murder Mile. They're very much appreciated. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist 
specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It wasn't too bad. It wasn't as bad as I thought. <sighs> Hello, everyone. How are we all? Are we all good? How is everyone? Oh, look at that. It's, I, I did that in not record time, but it was all right. How are we all? Is everyone well and happy and healthy and good? Plodding along, keeping busy? Do what we've got. That's, that's the secret to life, isn't it? Just keep yourselves busy. Do what you've got to do. Uh, not worry about stuff. There's there's too much in life to worry about, and you, you kind of think to yourself, "Why am I doing this? Why am I worrying about it?" And uh, you just think, "Ah, you know, just enjoy life. Have a cup of tea. Have a cake. Uh, yeah, don't get all stressed about shit." But that's the thing, isn't it? You get stressed about. Oh, I'm sorting out my curtains. Uh, you get stressed about stuff. Uh, and then at the end of it, when you finish stressing about it, you realise, hang on, the thing that I'm stressing about, A, is not actually that important, and B, what are those on there? <sighs> Little flies. Flies on the inside of my window. Um, lovely, what a treat. You, you stress about it, and when you finish stressing about it, you still, you know, the problem's still there. You just haven't solved anything, so why bother? Oh. <sighs> Uh, I'm. I tell you what. Let's go and put on my tea. Oh, uh, new people to the podcast. This is the way it goes. This is what extra miles like. It's a bit. It's unplanned. It's unscripted. Uh, we do we do a quiz in a bit. Uh, we have a bit of a chat. It's kind of a one way chat because I can't hear you, obviously. Uh, and then I, I fill you in on some details on the case, and I make a cup of tea. And sometimes I have a cake, but not at the moment because I'm trying to be a good boy. Because uh, someone is a little bit poorly. I say someone. I think we all know who. This is the part of the episode where I disappear off to the other part. I go and make a cup of tea. Uh, you've noticed in the last couple of weeks I've been turning up the volume on this so you can hear me a bit better. Uh, so I'm just making a... I think I'll do... Oops. Hey, yeah, there we are. It's on. Gas is on. Open the windows. Um, let's do a tea. Let's do a tea. Let's have a nice cuppa. A nice cup of Yorkshire tea. Two sugars, thank you very much. Uh, Get my powdered milk ready. As we all know, because I live on a boat, I don't. I have got a fridge, but it, it costs too much to power up, and I don't like waste. I don't see the point in having a fridge on just for to put some milk and some things in it. What I'd what I'd rather do is just get a bag of ice if I need th- things really cold, like beer. Ooh, beer. Ooh, my man, beer. Ooh. Ah, what else is going on? Um, 
Outside, not really much of a coot update. The coots are a bit quiet at the moment. I, they don't seem to be around where I am. Um, we've got some noisy ducks outside, which were being a bit mouthy a couple of minutes ago. Uh, at night time, it's nice around here, though. There's, um, there's lots of owls, which is very nice. I got my stepmom into uh, a, a, an app called Chirpomatic, and you point it towards where you hear bird sound, and it tells you what the birds are, and she'd love it around here. She'd be like, oh, brilliant. Um... But uh, there's lots of owls, and uh, at night there seems to be a bit of a conversation between owls and uh, muntjac deer. And I saw two muntjac deer. Uh, I was recording an episode of Walk with Me. If you like the waffly bit of extra mile, become a patron subscriber for I think it's I think it's like five pounds a month. You get loads of goodies, but you also get Walk with Me, which is an extra uh, uh, extra podcast that goes with this. And I fill you in on all the stuff that I can't fill you in an extra mile because it's kind of post editing. Uh, but on the, one of the last episodes, uh, I'd walk. I I think this was another episode where I I lost the recording, so it doesn't appear. But I I walked past some uh, some two monk jack deer, and they were really sweet. They were having a little look at me, and they were in a tiny little wood. And I was like, oh, really nice. Uh, what else is going on? Um, still trying to do my exercise. Still trying to be good. I've got my I've got. It's not a Fitbit because I can't afford a Fitbit. But I've got I've got one of the Chinese knockoff ones. Don't tell anyone. 30 quid. Come on. 30 quid. Brilliant. 30 quid. It does all your blood rate, blood oxygen level, your blood pressure, stuff like that. Got one for my dad because I wanted to make sure that he's doing well because he's... He'll hate me saying this, but he's, he is elderly now. Uh, so I want to make sure he's fit and well. So I got him one so I can keep tabs on how he's doing. Uh, but but it's good. I'm losing a bit of weight and my, my blood pressure has gone down. It's gone down from just above normal to getting nearer normal, which is good. So, yeah, well done me. What else is going on? Uh, this is the bit where I waffle while the, the kettle's brewing. Uh, uh, if you're a patron subscriber, uh, I, I've been selling off a limited run of exclusive mugs. So that's another reason to, to join Patreon. You can do it for... I think it's like $3 a month, which is £2 in real money. And you get a lot for that. But you get ex- exclusive merchandise deals on there. So Reg Christie mugs, Police Constable Arsenal Guinness mugs, which P- the real PCAG does have one of those mugs now. Uh, and a Blackout Ripper mug. So limited run on them. What else is going on? Uh, oh, this happened the other day. Uh, someone on the tour very kindly uh, gave me uh, £5. Ironic that it happens with this episode, the £5. Uh, it was a real £5 note, but the irony was, I'd forgotten about this. It was a Scottish pound note. And because I grew you know, Scottish family, I'm used to kind of receiving Scottish notes and kind of trying to find a way to get rid of them. Uh, I forgot that where I am in London, they no one accepts them. Everyone just stares at it and goes, what's that? What's that? I can't, literally, I in the laundry yesterday, I happened to go, it's it's legal tender. No, it's not. It's foreign. No, it's not. It's sterling. What do you mean sterling? What is... I had to explain to someone what sterling was. Oh, my God. Absolutely. I just put my water in my tea. I haven't disappeared. I had to explain to someone what sterling was. I said, it, it's our currency. And they went, what? It's English. I said, no, not English. It's sterling. And they went, well, I haven't seen a note like this before. And I said, no, because it's Scottish. And they went, okay, so it's foreign. I went, no, that's the point. And then we got into a bit of a to-do. And, and they were like, why don't why doesn't Wales have their own currency? And I'm like, well, that's a different thing, isn't it? It's like Scotland has made the decision. Wales don't want their own money. Oh, so uh yeah it took me ages to kind of get rid of it oh dear anyway i did it did it which is good so uh what else is going on uh oh just a reminder that uh 
Uh, Mudamar walks are ending at the end of this year. If you uh, the, the point about keeping the, the tours up and running, I would have closed them over summer, but I thought people still have vouchers. So if you want to use them up before uh, uh, the tours expire, don't forget I've I've emailed. Uh, I think uh, hopefully my system has emailed everyone who's still got a valid voucher. Um, even if you haven't got a valid voucher or you haven't used it up, please do get in touch. Um, what you can do, if you, you can come on the tour, we've got tours every Sunday, you can give the voucher to your friend, that's not a problem. Um, they can use it, just uh, message me and I'll make sure the details are up to date. Uh, or you can message me and say, I can't use a ticket, but I would like you to donate the money to St Mungo's, which is a homeless charity, so I'm happy to do that. I'm kind of st- stockpiling that money, so start next year, they will get a, a nice big sum of money and I'll let have everyone know how much we've earned. Um, I can do you a refund, but only if you book that ticket because of the way credit card systems work. I can't refund you if you haven't booked the ticket. It, has to, it will only go back to the person who, who purchased the ticket. Uh, or hopefully uh, I'll be doing a new tour in the new year for people who listen to the podcast. A little bit less or a lot less structured than the regular Murder Mile walk and it'll just be a bit of fun. Like like twenty or thirty of us having a walk around, you can kind of guide me on, on what you want to hear, and we'll do that. And we and you know, it's not a story; it's kind of you can ask questions, and uh, uh, we'll have a bit of fun. So I'm looking forward to that. That'll be a little bit less stressful, uh, and there won't be one a week. It'll be I think it'll be one every six weeks or something. But yeah, I don't want to tie myself into uh, uh, you know um, schedules. My life is scheduled enough, and I want to try and make sure that I, I have time off. And if COVID plays ball a little bit better, well, we'll see how winter goes. Uh, hopefully I get to see uh, family a bit more. So coming back, coming back, coming back, family and friends and things like that. So, right, let's do the quiz questions. Uh, I'll do the answers at the end. As always, don't forget, I'll probably balls up some of these questions, but I'll try not to. So here we go. Question number one. <gasps> what did Elizabeth do as a job? Question two, what was the name of Elizabeth's husband? Question three, what was the name of the pub where Martha tried to change the £5 note? Question four, what was the name of the lodger who lived in the next door room? Question five, how much was Martha paying to sleep in Elizabeth's bed. Question six. Which prison was Martha executed at? Question seven. Who was who was her executioner? Question eight is a hard one, so get ready. Uh, who owned the lodging house? Uh, question nine, what age was Martha? And question ten, uh, what age was Elizabeth? I would say if you get two or three of those questions right, well done. I, I doubt anyone got them all right, unless you've listened to this three or four times and then you've, you've 
bin there with a little pen marking them up so let's do some extra stuff in the episode uh what do we want to go into so oh god i've just marked something up but i can't tell you what that is okay uh so as mentioned martha and elizabeth were kind of living together in the same room uh, this was as we've seen in the earlier episode uh annie sutton and the stalker within this is quite a common practice people would live we we saw it in the uh the the very early one the german episode about the you know the guy who was absolutely absolutely off his rocker i can't remember his name william uh Keim. Peter Keim, I think it's called the the stabbing of Peter Keim. It's a really old one. That is, they were all sharing a uh, house together. That's the point. You were you were poor. You couldn't <coughs> afford a lot. You either paid by the week or by the day. Uh, you had to work. If you didn't work, you get booted out. People shared uh, multiple families shared rooms. So many people shared the shared beds with strangers. Um, so uh, Eliza and uh, Martha had known each other for about six months. Uh, they'd been uh, sharing the bed together for about three weeks, so it was roughly around the time that uh, Martha had lost her job. As we've seen with the other ones, the bedroom was really simple. It was small. It was a flock and feather bed. Uh, so uh, that meant uh, it wasn't a firm mattress. There's no support in it. Basically the same as the kind of the tick case, uh, which was the mattress that got above them. Basically, it was just like a linen case and it was stuffed with feathers and wool and straw and basically anything soft. But the problem is because it had no structure, you had to replump it every day and it was it was lumpy and uneven and uh, uh, riddled with fleas. Oh, joy. Uh, the prank note. Let's dive into this a little bit more. So we don't know quite where... Uh, where Elizabeth got the prank note from, whether it was from a newspaper or whether it was handed to her as a leaflet or things like that. Um, as mentioned, she kept it in a red cloth, cloth housewife. I like when things like this crop up because it means I have to go searching to find out what a housewife was. Uh, and that is a, a cloth case for needles, threads, buttons, things like that. But she also used it to keep kind of uh, special things that she kind of liked in there. And one of those was the prank note. Uh, she also kept like sometimes she kept coins in there. So the five pound note was the same size as a regular five pound note. But in those days, uh, it wasn't the size of the note that we have now. You're probably talking about three times bigger. Um, it was it was designed to look deliberately fake. It would look like a five pound note, but it, it clearly, if you present it to anyone, no one would take it seriously. So, uh, so because obviously forging is illegal, the idea was it was just a bit of advertising shops. You, you, you can take it into a shop and they go, Oh, that's funny. Uh, let me introduce you to, uh, the, the range of goods that we've got here. That was the whole idea to kind of lure people in. Um, um, the difference between the note, do you know, uh, they would have swirls some of them uh, had uh like pictures of uh the ones that i've seen in that era don't seem to have pictures of royalty so none of them had pictures of queen victoria on but they seem to have pictures of monuments and things like that so you'd have a monument they would put their own monument in there so many banks uh, actually issued their own one so you'd, you'd have like like the bank of devon or or the or or Phillips Bank of da da da. You, you know, any bank could issue their own. It got to the point where it would only be Bank of England who could do it. But that was that wasn't until years later. Um, but on these notes, it was meant to say Bank of England, but obviously you couldn't write Bank of England. So in big letters, it wrote Bank. Sometimes it would be Bank of Elegance. Sometimes Bank of Investment. That was the whole idea. So it looked like a five pound note, but it clearly wasn't. Uh, five pound note. 
Um, so our the average weekly wage for someone working six day week, ten hours a day was uh, three shillings and sixpence. Uh, we know that Martha had only worked about six months. She was earning, I think it was it was like about six pounds a year. Uh, so she would have only earned about three pounds roughly in total. So uh, there's a whole thing in here about where, where she said she'd saved up loads of money. And, but I took that out because it kind of slowed down the story. Uh, but, OK, so five pounds. Uh, one old pound was the equivalent of 240 pennies or and there were 12 pence per shilling. Uh, so uh, oh, uh, the family knew that this was Elizabeth's note. As mentioned, there was uh, some grease on it and some dirt, two smudges of grease in the corner of the note. And it was kind of easy to recognise that this was their mother's. She had shown it to everyone. She thought it was really funny. Uh, they We're not too sure exactly when she got it or how long she had it. Uh, what is, uh, morning of the murder so um i took a little bit of a section out there is um uh, so it's clear that this is what we couldn't get into in the episode because what i was trying to do was tell martha's truth and then kind of what the evidence says but what a lot of what it is is kind of we can tell that martha murdered uh, Elizabeth while she was still in bed while she was still in sleep uh, she actually confessed to a priest later on she said she wanted the five pound note she went into her box she got the rope cord she cut it to the right length uh, whilst Elizabeth was lying in bed she strangled her uh, obviously Elizabeth is quite a big lady and she's quite strong as well because she did a quite a demanding job uh, Martha is only little and quite slight so she was struggling to strangle her uh, which is why Elizabeth was able to cry out murder murder what are you doing to me um, the next door neighbour whose name I won't mention because that's one of the quiz questions she knocked on the door she hammered on the door uh, but uh uh, no one answered uh, at all. Oh yeah, uh, we we got. I'll put this in the episode. Well done, me. And uh, Martha shouted, uh, "Nothing's the matter at all." But clearly, something was the matter. She was murdering Elizabeth. Um, she said that she washed her face with water. Um, this could be the reason why uh, the bed was wet, as mentioned, or. Given the fact that she'd strangled Elizabeth, Elizabeth may have, as mentioned, uh, kind of evacuated her bladder and uh, urinated, as happens when you are hung. Uh, what else have we got? Uh, so she put on her coat and she went to her next door neighbour's room and said, uh, she said, the old lady is very poorly. If you hear any sounds, uh, check in on her. But she obviously didn't hear any sounds because uh, Martha, Martha, Elizabeth was already dead. But I still think that's kind of a weird thing is I wonder whether she wanted her next door neighbour to find the body while she wasn't there. It just seems it just seems weird that she she would she would say she would go, oh, you know, check on her if she makes any noises. But, you know, naturally, even if she wasn't making any noises, I think most people would probably go and check on her and go, are you all right, dear? Um, but obviously she didn't. Uh, so she went over to uh, Anne's house and her daughter. Uh, Anne's full name was Anne Gaze. Uh, oh, on, I'm just whizzing ahead. OK, so we'll look at the scene itself. The scene was kind of a bizarre one. So obviously they went in. The bed was empty. On the bed were stacked three heavy wooden chairs. 
Uh, it said they were piled up, so it's not it's it's not too sure whether they were piled separately on the bed or they're stacked on top of each other. But that seems to perhaps imply that this was where, if Elizabeth was trying to kill herself, that she'd put a noose around her neck and she'd climbed up on the chairs to get to the get to the roof pegs, uh, which she'd hang the noose on, and then she'd jump off. Uh, but it but the scene just doesn't make any sense at all because. The chairs were still in place. If she jumped off, the chairs probably would have fallen off. There would have been a noose on the uh, the roof rafters or the pegs, as the doctor called them. The doctor tried the pegs. He was hanging off them, and he said they wouldn't take his weight, and they definitely wouldn't take her weight because she was uh, Elizabeth was heavier than he was. There also wasn't a cord to the noose still wrapped around one of the pegs if it was on there, which it wasn't, which you'd expect if she, if she'd fallen down and the rope had snapped uh there were two pieces of cord around either side of her neck which was kind of you know a strangulation uh the suit strangulation doesn't suit hanging uh also that there weren't marks if she had hung herself given the fact that the knot was at the back of the neck the force of the rope would have been more at the front of the neck so there would have been a deeper impression at the front and less at the back but the doctor said uh he didn't see that it was even across uh, so all of this is kind of pointed towards strangulation uh he couldn't see how she could tie their own her own knot especially as it was at the back of her neck so this would suggest that maybe um uh martha was strangling uh, elizabeth as she was face down on the bed um uh, this was kind of interesting when they came into the room so Anne came in to the room uh uh Elizabeth uh, Martha was with her as were some of the some of the neighbors next door as well they walked into the room uh Anne had said my mother uh was then quite dead and someone suggested this shows the medical knowledge in that era someone suggested rubbing Elizabeth's stomach to help her to see if she's alive and to invigorate her this is what they believed in that era that uh, if someone was unwell you go in and you rub their little tum tum and then that would make make them better and make the death go away well done um now so tight was the rope around uh elizabeth's neck that they couldn't actually release it uh this was the point at which martha said you know for god's sake send a man there was a woman here has been hung she ran off to um Ah, uh, I think it was at a shop next door. It was a baker's shop. She went in there. She found found the baker's boy. This is where she said, uh, "Where did she said it?" Yeah, she said, uh, "For God's sake, send a, send someone." Uh, a woman has hung herself. The boy turned up. He got a knife with him. It took him a little bit of work. He managed to untie. He managed to cut the rope, but still, uh, Elizabeth was dead. Uh, so Doctor John Charles atkinson uh he was the the local surgeon he came around uh, this is in the era so met police has really just been established so uh, at this point you wouldn't call the police unless there was kind of a bit of crowd trouble or things like that police really didn't have much in terms of power in that day it was actually the doctors who really had the power at this point so a doctor was called um and although he seems to be really good, he seems to be the one going, no, this is, this is very suspicious. This We definitely need the police to get involved in this. But as we've seen before with the uh, the Camden Ripper episode, do you know, um, you need, it needs to go to uh, an inquest. And then at that point, if the inquest goes, okay, this is definitely a murder, then the police can do the, the investigation. Whereas if the inquest, as seen in the Camden Ripper with uh, 
the pathologist, Dr. Freddy Patel, who cocked up the first one massively, um, you know, because he said it was accidental death. The police couldn't do anything. So this is the, exactly the same situation here, except in this uh, initial inquest, Dr. Atkinson was not not asked uh, to give evidence. It, it was said uh, it was common practice at an inquest that a doctor would only be requested if medical facts were needed. But given the fact that most of the information there, if you take away everything Dr. Atkins says, everything there said that it was a suicide. And especially as you've got Martha, who was the only woman in the room saying, oh, she committed suicide. And you've got you've got Edward and Anne kind of a bit confused by this, thinking, God, did our mum really commit suicide? Everyone's saying she did. And it looks like she did because they're not medical people. Unfortunately, you know, the inquest said it was a suicide. Therefore, a police investigation couldn't be carried out. Um, but to the doctor, it was clear, you know, she didn't have burn marks on her hands, which you would expect given the force that she, if she was strangling herself, you would have found with her kind of forcing uh, the rope apart to strangle herself. Although, as mentioned, you know, how could she have tied the knot? The knot, if she would have tied the knot, the rope would have been, uh, would have loosened as she tried to tie the knot. Um, it's just, a, a lot of it doesn't make any sense at all. It's it's a, a look, an attempt to, to make it look like suicide by someone who doesn't really understand, you know, what makes a suicide. Um... So what else what else is in there yeah and how, how did how did uh, elizabeth manage to get on top of the box as the doctor would say um the rope was put around her neck while she was still alive the, he was able to tell that because the where the blood was in the body and how it's flowing and how the bruise marks happened um so the rope was put around her neck while she was alive she was strangled while she was still alive uh he doesn't know where uh, but her body was placed on the box after death. So, um, uh, what else have we got? Uh, yeah, yeah. He tried to hang off the pegs. So above, above where the chairs were and the and where the box was, were some pegs uh, on the roof. Kind of some roof pegs. It's kind of uh, joists uh, on the roof. And he hung off them, and he said they wouldn't take his weight at all. There's no way they would have taken her weight as well. Um, let's do let's do something on the execution. Um, ah, oh, cup of tea, lovely cup of tea, but no cake. Maybe I might treat myself later on. Um, so she was hanged on Monday, the fifth of January, eighteen forty-six, outside Newgate Prison. So this was uh, before uh, this was uh, before they used to take people on a little bit of a journey to Marble Arch where the Tyburn tree was and that was a big public spectacle but then they started they realized it was a bit of a, a jaunt to take people like a mile and a half two miles over to from uh, Hoban to uh, Marble Arch so they, they started doing public hangings on Newgate Street outside Newgate Prison which was a bit as mentioned in one of the earlier episodes i think it was the marie Poulton one the the lady who uh gave birth to a baby then strangled it and hid it because she was a single mum uh as mentioned there's the first water fountain public water fountain was put uh there uh outside newgate prison because there was su such a spectacle of people coming to watch all the executions that were there um morning of the execution uh so this uh 
she was in her cell at about five to eight. It was like kind of a five minute walk to get there to get to the uh, gallows. Uh, the reverend was there. She'd had a priest the night before and the priest had kind of given a confession. Uh, uh, she'd given a confession there. Um, uh, a sacrament had, be, had been administered um, and they were preparing the execution, uh, preparing to get her executed. Um there's a lot of spectators uh, they estimated around 30,000 but we're still not too sure exactly how many but you know what the, the 30,000 was a good number at one execution I can't remember if it was Amelia Dyer they said there was they estimate there was close to 100,000 people had come to see her die uh five minutes to eight she was being readied uh William Calcraft the executioner entered the cell for the purposes of pinioning the the culprit if you look at um uh, Albert Pierpoint, who we've done many times before. Albert Pierpoint was an absolute professional. I mean, have a look at the uh, the, the great drama uh, just called Pierpoint with Timothy Spall as Pierpoint. It's brilliant. It's like Pierpoint w didn't want wanted to make sure that people were kind of executed in quite a humane way. He could get people from. He'd worked out all the tricks in advance, all the kind of techniques he'd need to do to make sure that by the time he opened the door, he could have them dead from door. Um, within seven seconds from opening the door to being hung do you know none of this whereas Calcraft was a showman he liked to entertain the crowds he liked to drag it out so he'd he'd come into the cell he'd pinion the, the culprit he'd drag them on a kind of a, a a very long walk from their cell all the way through Newgate prison to the uh, uh, to where the execution site was uh, it was said the unhappy woman rose from her seat she had previously occupied and at once resigned herself into the hands of the officer uh, she bore the trying process without manifestation of any feeling beyond shedding sh a few tears uh, which ceased to flow before the operation was completed she said her thank yous uh, a slight tremor passed over her frame as the first sound of the chapel bell struck upon her ear um, uh, she kissed the nurse who attended her during the night and bade farewell um, uh, she then shook hands uh, with the sheriffs the sub-sheriffs the chaplain and the governor of the prison um ventured to do her last walk which was the, the long walk you've got to do all the way to uh uh to the uh to the gallows uh they uh, on that point they read the service for the burial of the dead uh, the procession crossed the chapel yard and entered the passages of the prison uh she mounted the scaffold at that point um uh now it said as she walked there she required no uh kind of support from anyone at all but mounting the scaffold she did it with a uh, uh she did it with a degree of activity which surprised all of those who witnessed it uh there are obviously jeers and outbursts from the crowd because for everyone this is a bit of entertainment um none of her family seemed to have come to see her during that uh also she i, I took him out of the story because it slowed it down she seemed to have a boyfriend called james loundon who seemed to be known as jem but no one seems to know much about him so whether he actually existed we don't actually know uh, she reached the summit of the scaffold she turned around to the reverend uh and the governor and she bid them farewell uh, she seems to be holding it together by this point a rope is put on and she's placed underneath the fatal beam the rope was adjusted a cap was drawn over her face and um 
the Reverend uh, gave the signal and the boat bolt with w- bolt was withdrawn. Now she by that point she'd already uttered her her final words: "The Lord have mercy on my soul." Um, now with uh, Albert Pierpoint, Albert Pierpoint would you know he worked out methods of working out someone's weight. Uh, therefore, he determined the length of the rope. It was a, a very detailed calculation because prior to this point people would uh, you you would be hung if if the rope was too long you drop too far uh your neck wouldn't just snap your neck would come off and many people were kind of entirely decapitated um in this case as seen he didn't calculate i don't did he even bother to weigh her we don't know so uh her rope wasn't enough so it dropped a little bit but it didn't break her neck so basically she was hanging there for ages unable to breathe you know arms and legs struggling audiences love it because it's kind of like oh look she's struggling oh she can't breathe she's dying in a really horrible horrific way and then as he would do uh he would grab hold of her legs and kind of hang on them to kind of get the force of the body causing body to pull down on her body to make her her die quicker um in some cases uh families were allowed to do this at executions this was kind of part of the punishment um and as mentioned there was a bit of a rush of uh a crowd to come forward to watch her um a young girl by the name of eliza smith who was nine years old whose parents were residing in the neighborhood of broadway in ludgate hill was knocked down amongst the crowd and trampled upon such a shocking manner as to break her right leg and her body was maimed uh, in such a way that a surgeon who attended does not hold out the slightest hopes for her recovery. And even uh, should she survive, she would be crippled for life. That was in the newspaper at the time. So uh, as you can appreciate, you know, today you break a leg, not really a problem. But back then you break a leg, it's pretty much, you're pretty much buggered. Uh, so I think that's it. I think that's it. I think that's all, everything I can really say about that episode. Uh, so I hope you enjoyed that. Something different. Um, uh, let's go into the quiz questions so uh, let's see how you did and let's see if I ballsed any of them up I probably did uh, so um, question one what did Elizabeth do as a job she was a domestic servant uh, we don't know who to unfortunately Th- those details aren't there because uh, it, it didn't really warrant being mentioned in the case question two what was the name of Elizabeth's husband uh, his name was Thomas Mundell, and he was a soldier, as far as we can tell, and he was in the Queen's Guards. Uh, question number three. What was the name of the pub where Martha tried to change the £5 note? It was a pub called the Blue Boy, and it seems to have been named after the Blue Boy, uh, which is still there today on the, the, the little school that's uh, on brewer's green uh question four what was the name of the lodger who lived next door it was mary cheshire burpee question five how much was martha paying to sleep in elizabeth's bed it was 18 pence uh which was less than a shilling so uh, that was 18 pence a week. And if you think that each pound is 240 pence and then it's five pound notes, that's, that's almost two years worth of rent. Uh, question six. Which prison was Martha executed at? I may have just balls this one up. 
that was, of course, Newgate Prison, uh, which is on the side of the Old Bailey. Uh, question seven. Uh, who was her executioner? I would have ballsed up that one as well. You can, you can count these as yours. Even if even if, if you if you heard me say it and you got it right, count it as one of yours. Go go for it. Who was her executioner? It was, of course, William Calcraft. Um we will probably mention Calcraft again, and on uh, Murder Mile Walks, there is a case about William Calcraft, but not this one. Um, question eight. Uh, who owned the lodging house? I doubt anyone will get this one right. It's a hard one. Uh, it was Mrs. Graham. Uh, and as mentioned in other episodes, you know, women couldn't uh, keep savings or couldn't own a house. Unless they were a widow. And in this case, she was a widow. Hence, she owned the lodging house. Uh, question nine. What age was Martha? She was 23. And what age was Elizabeth? She was 61. Great. Good. That's that done. Whoa. Hope you enjoyed that. It's, it's Wednesday morning and I'm recording already. That, that that episode, I flew through that. I tried. I tried my best. I was like... I want to get myself ahead of the game. I want to try and teach myself to to write and edit an episode in five days as opposed to six or seven. I want to try and make sure I can have weekends off. So, uh, but without losing the quality of the episode. So I'm just, I'm teaching myself not to daydream and not to get distracted, which I do a lot. And, you know, just to focus and keep saying to myself, no, get back to the script. So uh, that's what I'm doing. So, uh... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, edit this. Uh, have yourself a good week. Stay safe. Be good. Lots of love. Be well. Bye-bye. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.